So before this episode starts, here's an explanation for why no content in so long. The day before, maybe two days before, we rode down to Austin for MotoGP. We recorded an episode, finally, with our friend Bruce Phillip from This Motorcycle Life. And, like, I was going to post it right before we left, and then uh, the Zencaster recording didn't back up, and my computer took a shit, and the SD card was corrupted. And it has taken until now to recover that audio. However, we did record some episodes in the meantime. Part of me just really needed to set these episodes, send these episodes out in order. So we're going to have a double dump of content today. And probably another episode this weekend. And we'll get ourselves all caught up. Thank you so much for waiting for this stuff. Here is our episode from April 12th with Bruce Phillip. I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode number 207. Is that right, Swigs? Close enough. Uh, Close enough. There we go. Coming to you from, uh, what do I always say? This is uh, no, uh, um, uh, Moto One Podcast Network Studios recording suite A, which is also Nokomoto headquarters here in northern Colorado, where we had another one of our 300 days of sunshine that we get every year. It was beautiful. We had a test ride today of motorcycles we already own, but nonetheless, we were out and riding today, and it was excellent. And we learned something about rear suspension. Anyway, before we get into that, this is a very special episode because we have a very special guest. Announce yourself. (laughs) My name is Bruce Philp, and I'm the host of This Motorcycle Life, my personal favorite podcast after yours. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, um, let's see. We did. What? When did we do your show, Bruce? It was a while ago now. Yeah, I want to say, you know, I should have had an answer ready for this. I want to say it might have been almost three years uh, or more. It was before the Troubles, for sure. The Troubles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was it 2019 that we went to Vegas? We went to Vegas in 2018. Jeez, it's been that long ago. Okay. Yeah. So it was probably f- four years ago? Five or six. I mean, yeah, did, maybe. It's been... did we do that episode before Vegas? We did. Wow. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we must did, have. Actually. Jeez. So it's been, yeah, it's been like five years. Jeez. Okay. So anyway, yeah, we did episode <laughs> uh, like seven of your show, eight, something like that. Pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. How many episodes early. are you up to now? Um, if 52, if you count the one that I did live at a film festival uh, a few years ago. So not, not nearly as productive a project as yours has been, but uh, <laughs> that's where I'm at. Yeah, well, I think you could call our show prolific. I don't know if you could call it productive. Right, yeah. <laughs> You're on like a similar drop schedule to like Dan Carlin with Hardcore History. <laughs> yeah, he's my spirit animal. <laughs> I But I mean, similar results. You're always like in like top, uh, top searches. So like it's working for you. It makes me wonder, like, should we just get like really slow at putting out episodes? Is that going to bump our numbers, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I'd miss you. Yeah, <laughs> I we'd miss doing it. Yeah, uh, we unfortunately we feel com- a compulsion 
to do the show as often as we do. But we rarely have guests, and that speaks to the quality of our guests this week. So we are, I think, for this episode, what we should do is a little housekeeping at the front here. We should do our best worst bike, and then we have a special topic to get into after that, which is can you really ride alone, which I think um, – I think it's this is something that you're going to be uh, qualified to deal with, Bruce. So, Indeed. <laughs> uh, but before we get into best worst bike here, I I put this up on the Patreon yesterday, and so what we learned about rear suspension today. I as long as so so listeners know that I've got this seventy eight Goldwing, which has been like the best twelve hundred dollars I ever spent. I've had hardly any issues with the thing. It's uh, people say they're a pain in the ass to work on. I've honestly found it a joy to work on. Uh, I haven't found any of the maintenancing particularly bad or troublesome or whatever. But there has been one issue with it, which I've been kind of quiet about. I've had this weird kind of front end wobble around 75 miles an hour with it. And for a while, I thought, uh, well is this bike just maybe not meant to go that fast, you know? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, it's cause it's got a small front wheel. Like as, as compared to bikes today, it's a pretty, it's a pretty narrow tire for a bike that big. And then I thought, well, and maybe this tire isn't balanced, but a reputable shop balanced the tire for me. And then I thought, well, is this the issue? So I did a static balance on it myself with no difference in results and I was I was about to get balance put balance beads in it, even though it's a tube tire. I I was ready to go to extreme lengths like that, just to, just to like, I, short of having like voodoo incantations put on the bike, right? I I was ready to try anything to get rid of this this shake on the front, especially before we take it two thousand miles, and I. I really didn't think this was going to work, but the rear suspension on the bike was bad enough that I just, I just rolled the dice and I ordered like a $90 set of MGO rear shocks thinking, well, they won't be as bad as the original shocks. And whilst they are just a little stiffer than I would prefer, oh my God, so much better. And I, this should have occurred to us before. But it turns out your rear suspension can be so bad, it fucks up your front suspension. I, yeah, my my front forks, my front as if I have rear forks. My forks are uh, like twice as good as they were. I I thought maybe I had like not done quite as good a fork rebuild as I thought I had, or I didn't have the right air pressure in them or the right fork oil level or whatever. No, it turns out they're perfect. I I did a perfect job on them. My rear suspension was just that fucked up. So top tip of the week, even if it's only a hundred dollars, if you've got an old bike get new rear shocks at $90. It's not even worth like putting new springs in the shocks that you have or whatever, just get new ones. It's, it's not worth living the way that you've been living. It's true. But yeah, I think yeah, your shocks, your old shocks had, it kind of felt like you were like 
it was like it was like uh riding in a uh, like a cab over truck like eight feet off the ground <laughs> yeah it was it a was... bouncy ride yeah it, <laughs> it was i mean it wasn't uncomfortable it wasn't terrible but it wasn't ideal right yeah so now it is a much better world oh my gosh oh uh, it, well, you wrote it, and you were just like, and, and you've been sort of like hot and cold on the Goldwing. You're like, this is great for what it is, but today was the first time I saw you get off it and be like, all right, this is a proper motorcycle. I feel like I could ride this long term if I had to. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and that's really all there is to it. It turns out your rear suspension can be that bad. Your front suspension is fucked up too, which makes perfect sense. It's a balancing act, right? I, it just, I don't know. No one ever said that out loud to me. It just came over us in a huge wave today. <laughs> uh, so there we go. All right. Now that that's out of the way, well, I guess also just reminding everyone, uh, it's Wednesday. So what? We're, we're within 72 hours. No. Uh, yeah. We're probably 50, 60 hours away from leaving for MotoGP. Um, a little bit more than that, but yeah. So it's, yeah, so, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. So, like, I'm not going to do the math. Under three, under 72 hours. Okay, I'm going to throw this out there. We had, still have, three extra MotoGP tickets. We were trying to sell them. Uh, at this point, if you think you can just make it to GP, let us know within the next 24 hours of hearing this, and you can just have one of these tickets. I'll remove it for sale. I, I don't, I don't think they're going to sell. I, you know, but if we only sell, if we sell two of them and give one away, that's not going to kill us financially. Uh, at this point, yeah, they're just brutal. I don't know. They're, they're just climbing in price, and Ticketmaster won't let me cut the price on them. They just have to sell for a minimum price. Ticketmaster's fucked up, and there's no other way to buy them this year. I usually buy them directly through Coda, but I couldn't do that. So anyway, if anyone can make it to GP, first come, first serve. There's at least one ticket, maybe two. I don't know. We'll see. They could get bought at any moment. So if they're available and, you know... It's within a day and or whatever, and I can I can take them off. I can stop the listing anytime I want. So, you know, get on it if you think you can just make it. The, at this point, these tickets are like two, three hundred bucks each for all three days. So, you know, uh, it might be it might be the thing that makes your trip financially possible. I don't know. And you can camp with us there too. So anyway, um, right. I think it's time for best worst bike in the world this week. Swigs, what do you say? Let's do it. All right, here we go. This is best worst bike in the world this week. This is the signature section of the show. This is where Swigs and I have each chosen a bike. We don't know each other have chosen. It's always going to be a surprise. Remember, it's really just a fun way to look at two different motorcycles in a way that you might not normally look at them. If you take exception to our choices and opinions, as correct as they may be, and as wrong as you may be, you can still send constructive feedback to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. Or, you know what? Feel free to just join our Patreon, where you can not only have the option to be a guest on the show and in real time interact and bring your gripes and griefs to us, but you can also send us messages anytime at your leisure also. So, Swigs, you have... 
best bike in the world this week. I do. Awesome. And are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is? The 2023 Royal Enfield Super Meteor 650. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know much about this. I mean, it's the same 650 moto, uh, motor as on the ones that we rode at Ames two, three years ago. But it's a different frame, right? Yes. So, essentially, this is... Uh, yeah, essentially the Continental GT slash Interceptor 650 as kind of uh, sort of like a metric cruiser, kind of parallel twin cruiser style. I squint my eyes and I see a Triumph Bonneville America. Well, funny you should mention that. I contend this is what the Bonneville America should have been. Okay. In that it's not incredibly polarizing and emblematic of nothing okay (laughs) no as in that's what the bonneville america was i think this is a much better attempt at it so i mean it's it's a very similar uh frame and it's got the forward controls but Ultimately, what it is, is it's another take on kind of the small displacement metric cruiser style. I know, well, I imagine it is metric, but the point is, is that it's essentially kind of a cheap and cheerful cruiser, but it's not quite the, it's not quite as, I'm trying to think what the term is. It's not quite so understated and, you know, calculated as as the the Japanese 650s are. This one's got a bit more character to it. And it's got a bit of an interesting story as well. Yeah, when for some reason when uh cruiser guys see Kawasaki or Yamaha or Honda on the side of a teardrop tank, they just sort of think there's a bunch of passionless number crunchers behind the bike and it doesn't and somehow it doesn't carry the romance of a bike made by white people i guess i don't know but but since this says royal enfield on it even though in this in this day and age there's absolutely nothing british left about the company that's not true oh no the bikes are still designed in the uk oh okay Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I can I contribute a bit of trivia to that? Of course. Point, which is, so when Royal Enfield acquired Harris Performance, their whole game in terms of chassis design went up about ten levels, um, and it's not something that many people have reported on because their bikes generally don't, I think, flatter the egos of motorcycle journalists. <laughs> but you know, you can edit that out. Um, but uh, the fact is that that every bike they've made since that company was integrated into Royal Enfield has had impeccable road manners. And the reason is because Harris knew what it was doing. They bought the talent. It's, it's kind of as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, how, how different is this frame than you think than the, uh, the, the, uh, the interceptor and the, um, the GT that we rode? I mean, it looks longer. Um, I'm not entirely sure. It may actually be the same frame. I'm not entirely sure, but it's, I mean, 
it doesn't really matter that much. It's more, I mean, for most of these bikes, it really is just kind of the seat in the tank and the controls. But I'm not sure. I honestly, I don't think it matters. We can pull one up if you like. It, it probably doesn't, but I, I like the name. I, I just like surface level stuff about this because, I mean, I, if if it if it behaves in any way similar to the bikes we rode, I have no complaints. Right? Mm-hmm. I the 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 interceptor is a bike that makes forty five horsepower feel like seventy five, and. I thought the handling was totally fine. I thought the comfort was totally fine. I thought the fit and finish was fine. I thought, uh, I mean, everything about it. I mean, uh, some people were concerned, like, because the, the way the engine is, they were like, ooh, I'm a little concerned with how close my knees are to the engine. But it's like, dude, your knees are like, close to the valve covers. It's not going to get that hot. You're fine. And um, if this is just anywhere near that, then there's nothing to complain about how it rides. It's just going to be good. And I, I don't know, Cleveland Moto and a bunch of other people have been like, I don't know, it's Royal Enfield. They they hurt us so bad for so long. Well, yeah, I think he was, well, he was talking from the dealership perspective just because right. he had got burned on all the old stuff before they retooled. And, but and I still just haven't else. heard about this, this motor, the, these platforms having any problems. At least, at least mm-hmm. no more than any other bike would have, right? Every major brand is going to have recalls of some kind. You're going to be able to find something that isn't t- perfect or doesn't have the 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 absolute, you know, uh, expected, you know, wear life on every single part. There, there, there's a lot of moving bits on these things, right? There's going to be something. But in general, I don't think I've heard anyone say that these these have a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, in a way, also sort of they, they get to play this game that Triumph and all these other ones are playing, but they don't suffer from the legacy fraud aspect because they never really stopped making those classic bike, having this classic look like it's not really a retro bike. This is actually the most modern thing Royal Enfield has ever done. So you I mean, philosophically anything, get to feel of, good about it, too. If anything, they held on to um yeah, pre-unit construction a little too long. <laughs> yeah, longer than Harley. Yeah. Uh, so in any case, I, I think it's what, what's the th- um, what what what's the cost on this? Um, I don't actually know. They don't sell them here just yet. So, oh no. Okay. So this is a bike that will either be here be here in the U.S. Uh, in the summer, or it may show up in 2024 over here. Hmm. Well, if if you were going for this kind of bike swigs and you came across a really clean Bonneville America or let's say a, a V-Star 650 or or this, like which way are you leaning? Like this brand new or the very clean used V-Star or Bonneville America? Uh Weird. So I I don't I wouldn't want to ride the V Star just because there are so many other there are so many other maybe bikes. like a Shadow Arrow then. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever get a Shadow, but 
No, I, I, I would go away. I would stick, keep away from the the Japanese metric cruisers just because there's so many other Japanese, there's so many other bikes on those manufacturers I'd want to ride. The Bonneville America, I would briefly consider just because it's so unpopular. I have to see what it's like. But if, I mean, if I'm being practical and I also want a bit of character. There is a dealership in Denver. Like, it's not crazy to own one of these, and it's a new bike. I'd kind of go for this, especially after riding the Interceptor and the... Or no, well, I rode the Continental, but yeah. I think I think I'd go for this. I'm, I'm going to guess, just looking at this thing, we're, we're talking something like 8,000, 9,000. The Interceptor started at like 6,200, I think. Mm-hmm. In like 2018. So this one here is the the touring model. Uh, there are there are more kind of plain. Yeah, you know, without the, um, without the yeah. bags and the crash bars and everything. So I think this one, I don't think I don't know, but I don't think this one's that much more expensive than an interceptor. If if the basic thing is well, I mean the interceptors have to have risen in price. I don't. I haven't seen what the price of one is recently, mm. but they must have gone up in price. Everything's gone up in price. Yeah, it's. But yeah. I think. But even back in like 2020, the the, the interceptor was like six and a half grand. Right. Assuming everything is relative to that price and that point in time, I think it's it's a pretty, it's a pretty modest, modestly priced bike. I mean, you're kind of. You are getting what you're paid, what you're paying for, and that you're getting an an air cooled, an oil cooled, um, six fifty parallel twin. But it's, you know, it's, it's not without charm. Yeah. yeah, and it's playing to it. So, yeah. You know, now again, if you go read all the other people who want to glow, like speak positively about this, they they talk about like how this is going to disrupt like the Harley faithful who's who've become like. Disenchan- and disenchanted with the brand, which is dumb. Yeah, that's not definitely a different market. But no, I think I think this is a nice kind of classically styled bike with enough modern reliability and features, reasonable power and torque, and just kind of if you just are getting into riding or if you want something a bit with a bit of different character then this gives it to you this is kind of a perfect first bike like mm-hmm. i said the, these motors are down around 45 horsepower but it's like the biggest 45 horsepower you've ever felt well it's 45 horsepower 40 foot pounds of torque right which is kind of in that range of like it's not it's not so it's definitely not so powerful that you would be out of control but it's also not so anemic that like you've really got to be on it to to do anything like yeah i i i I like it i um well i always say it's we, we we get caught up in the numbers so much but how a bike makes you feel is super important and just the the look of this is just right, and it hasn't really swayed away from the Royal Enfield thing. And I, it's going to be really easy for someone to pull the trigger on this. It's like 
Bonnevilles are just so damn expensive anymore. Mm. Right? The, 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 uh, the, the, this, if anything, this is going to steal some triumph sales. And, well, I mean, not really, because they'll probably just put dealerships where there are not Triumph dealers, right? This will steal, like, Triumph sales in Kansas, right? <laughs> you know? I'll tell you what, I would own this over a Bonneville, uh, over a Bobber. Oh, over the Bobber a hundred times, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, is this thing going to shake the world? Of course not, but not every bike has to. I I, I, I see where, where this lands. It makes sense to me. It's not... Um, uh yeah they yeah royal enfield should have a bike like this it's yeah is do they still make bullets uh i hope not i hope not also. yeah <laughs> there's a they they make something called a a classic 350 now that's right lo- looks to all intents and purposes like a bullet, except it's a single, well, I guess the bullet was a single too. Um, but it's super reliable and fun to ride and nothing falls off it. There we go. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, another, well, another thing to point out here, I think that I, I think is real is really nice about the current Indian bikes is that they're not chasing horsepower because we're kind of, now getting to the end of this phase of every year you know every remodel like the bike has to make a little bit more power yeah it's a post horsepower world yeah yeah and it kind of got pushed to such extremes that now we're going back to parallel twins and we're like lowering displacements again to kind of reset because everything's gotten out of control uh but you can just go back to making you know a 10 to one compression air cooled motor. And, and that's what you're getting out of this. And I think, and you're not paying silly dollars for it either. Yeah. I I wonder if, if every person that sits around and gripes why they can't have a simple air and oil cooled, you know, lower compression, just simple motorcycle, you know, actually, we'll put their money where their mouth is and actually buy it, right? Mm-hmm. I again, uh, we were gonna talk about this a few weeks ago, but we kind of cut it out, uh, cut it out of the show because we were just way too drunk. But there, this is the first year I've noticed there being less classic styled retro bikes on the market, mm-hmm. and even some of them that are kind of you know, claim to be retro styled are kind of going for a more sort of pseudo eighties futuristic thing rather than being that sixties, seventies kind of style. And I, I, I think we're starting to get over this as a real special thing. Like the, the, the vintage cosplay kind of thing, like, you know, the brown leather seats phase of, of motorcycling, which I have complained about a lot, but I've also made peace with it. You know, if if a brown leather seat got someone into riding, cool. You know, um, there certainly were plenty of them. Uh, so, uh, I 
I mean, it's a much smarter use of your money to buy this than, you know, some sort of cafe racer dream that's never going to happen. But I, I, I think we're past a lot of those days, too. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. It's it's nice to see something sensible, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, I like that because of the, the rocky history of of Royal Enfield... When I look at this, it doesn't look it doesn't appear to me like it's trying to really promise anything. It's kind of maybe like under promise over deliver a little bit, right? There is so much there's so much heavy marketing and in your face, you know, Google ads and attitude and heritage and whatever with all the triumph stuff. And of course, that's always been the way with Harley and and um you know, with like the XSR or Yamaha, you go on the website and they were just like pushing it in your face. Like, you know, heritage, history, tradition, blah, blah, blah. Here's some black and yellow racing stripes. And uh, this feels like it doesn't have shit to live up to, you know? It, it, it And in fact, if you look at Royal Enfield 12 years ago, there was nowhere to go but up. So <laughs> the, maybe... Maybe there's less baggage with this too. I don't know. Uh, it there's there's zero things about this that irk me. Yeah, and I think there's. I don't. I'm a, I'm a big. I I I do like. How do I put this? Is I do. I am somewhat enamored with the way that without getting bought up and you know having somebody else make whole new motorcycles without any legacy fraud. Like the total overhaul and re reinventing of Royal Enfield and starting to produce reliable motors and creating popular bikes. Like, I mean, there was a time when everybody had an opinion on the Himalayan. Yeah. And you know, the I the way that they reinvented themselves, everyone had good things to say about the interceptor. Uh and even if if not everyone's buying a Royal Enfield. Uh, everyone's had some positive things to say about them. And I I just love the way that they reinvented themselves. Is that 400 Scram for sale yet? Uh, I don't know. It was called the Scram, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's basically sort of the the less adventury Himalayan, I guess. Uh, yeah. Oh, the 411. Oh, is it 411? Oh, this this one, yeah. Um, I have not been following this bike. I was interested by that. The yeah, I guess it's worth reflecting here more than the bike itself. Really, the story is kind of Royal Enfield. Let's think for a moment. How many of these brand revivals have worked, like Legacy Fraud or not, like worked in any way, shape, or form? Right, Bruff Superior. Not so great. Uh, last I checked, they're not moving a lot of units, and they're weird, and no one really buys into the fact that that there is a whole lot of heritage there. Norton has been a fucking train wreck. Um, uh, 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 who uh, the still waiting on this electric reinvention of BSA China? Uh, okay, um, you know. Uh, I think someone tried to do something with Vincent that went nowhere. Of all these like brand resurrections, how many have worked in 
any capacity whatsoever. Uh, Polaris Indian. Uh, it's a short I, I think list. Royal, I think Royal Enfield's going to be a business case someday because they've been so hype free. Um, and so long on substance since they started this reinvention. I mean, I yeah. mentioned the Harris Performance Acquisition. Um, the, um, uh, the, the, the Continental GT, I rented one of those a few years ago, was shocked by what a great bike it was. And I just spent a few days in Australia on a, on a classic 350 and was, again, shocked by what a great bike it Wait, was. Wait, you've been riding you know, these recently and you're just now bringing it up? <laughs> well, I, I'm Canadian. I don't, I don't like to interrupt. <laughs> I mean, I could go on all day about the about the. Please uh, do. Particularly the the classic three hundred and fifty was just a. You never had so much fun with twenty horsepower. Um, you know they do all this grassroots stuff. You know the the women's program that they run, the flat track program, and the the builder program, and it's all super low key. Um, and a little while back, uh, Fort Nine did a um, one of their wonderful videos. I don't know if you guys are a fan are fans or not. Oh yeah, but, um, I love his so new cheese one, video. Yes, a classic. Um, so they did one where uh, he decided that as a proxy for manufacturing quality in the technical, most technical sense, he would test break-in oil. So, so the reasoning was that whatever was in the oil after the break-in period was an indication of how clean the building conditions were and how you know kind of rigorous the process of putting the motors together was. And Royal Enfield won it. They they had huh. the cleanest break in oil of any. There were at least three Japanese brands in the list, and anyway, not which is not to argue that they're the best bikes in the world. But what I love is that they're doing things that are substantial, and the hype is close to zero, and the 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 proof appears to be in the pudding because I've just not had a bad experience on a Royal Enfield in a very long time. Well, I was I was just kind of like throwing things in the air to see what stuck, but you know, I, like I said, the the you know you you mentioning it being hype free. That's why you know the bike's kind of under promising and over delivering, right? It, yeah, that, that's exactly right. It, it, there there just doesn't seem to be like a huge uh, specific image of a type of rider or a. I don't know, a club association or, I mean, there is to some degree with every bike, even just the style of the bike will imply something, but th this is relatively sort of free of all that because I, I think a lot of people are aware that it's, it is, while it is an old British name, it's, it's definitely not, you know, it definitely has a lot of its roots in India now. And I, well, I think I think they've got a new CEO now, as of a couple a couple years ago. But I think the one before that, who kind of oversaw the Himalayan and the and the Interceptor in most of the retooling, um, was a younger guy, and he did ride the prototype bikes, and he is a rider, right. which I don't think you can say that of a lot of motorcycle company CEOs right now. Yeah, like what? What's his face? Who revived uh, Triumph? Who who started Hinkley Triumph? Um, oh my gosh, John Bloor. There we go, Bloor. Yeah, yeah. It, it it when you when you revive a brand correctly, there should be equal or more enthusiasm for the real for the current, you know, incarnation than just fondness for the past. Yeah. We're, we're always, we always say, you know, Hinkley Triumph, Polaris Indian, you know, 
and because that's what the company is. It's not some company that we pulled through like some time vortex or whatever, right? Like it's not. It, and if you did, you wouldn't want it. If you, exactly, yeah. if you did, you wouldn't want it, right? So if you do it correctly, it shouldn't be like, oh, this is great, but man, I want to get my hands on like a 1950s bullet 500. No, you don't. Trust me, you don't. I trust me, you don't. You don't want one from the 80s. You don't want one from 2002. Okay. And I, yeah, this, this is, I, I, I would I I would I would challenge anyone to this. I would say like prove me wrong that the best version of Royal Enfield isn't today's Royal Enfield. Oh, no question. Yeah. So I guess that's the story here with this with this meteor. Like is this the best thing the company's ever put out? It's the it's the most power that they've ever put in a bike. You know, is it? Yeah, I will have to see one in person, but maybe it's the best fit and finish. Also, maybe it's the best styling. Maybe it's going to be the best selling. This is, you know, with every Honda that comes out, right? And people have a lot of opinions on like what's the best Harley from the past, what's the best, you know, whatever from the past or or current or whatever, and so many different lines or whatever. I think it's conceivable that this might be the best Royal Enfield of all time. As maybe unremarkable or middle of the market as it is, that's still something to say. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, I think they've got a couple of other things going for them, too, that aren't necessarily visible to us. And, and one of them is is national pride. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you guys were talking about what's the motorcycle culture like in India. And I, I certainly am not qualified to answer that question, but I follow some people who ride there in in groups and their the pride in royal enfield is um is exactly as rabid uh as you'd find for harley davidson you know in your part of the world um and that kind of that gives a brand ballast you know triumph had that going for it harley has that going for it bmw had that going for it i and i and i think the other thing is that the the the, the company itself wants to be a leader in the new india so there's a lot of big forces that want this company to succeed, I think, and and they seem to be doing it in a in a modest way, which I doing it doing it in a, in a modest style, not in a modest way, but which I think probably is going to guarantee their success. Yeah, it, slow and steady is is way better than a, you know a fashionable flash in the pan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also it's just a lot more credible as well, especially in this era of vaporware electric bikes that yeah <laughs> that never that never materialize yeah this is yeah. very very real i mean well I, we are talking about a bike that's not for sale in the u.s yet but <laughs> but i mean but you know they they they've had a 100 percent success rate bringing all their bikes you know to 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 sale in in the united states thus far it's it seems weird that they wouldn't bring this one here so yeah, and it, it's clearly it's clearly aimed at the U.S. market. This would be a very expensive, flashy status bike in in India. I a six fifty is their version of a twelve hundred. You know, yeah. But I I think I like I don't even know if you can get CBR six hundreds there, but I know you can get the the CBR six fifty F. 
and that's kind of like their super bike uh at the moment so so this would be a very ostentatious thing to be riding around in india so i mean i'm sure they'll sell some but they'll sell just as many here as they will in all of india i'm sure because yeah um but yeah it, it it's i don't know maybe just like a little bit more special kind of a of a packaging of that sort of like honda shadow promise i guess right i think that's probably fair yeah i, I think the shadow is a better comparison than the v star in terms of like where it's going to land in the market but you know as much as i love honda and as much as the shadow's been a a reliable sort of entry cruiser for a lot of people and you know there's still just tons of them everywhere on the road it they they just don't feel that special anymore right mm. and i don't know maybe this has got a little bit more going for it in the cool factor if you like as we just discussed know some things about the company and the resurgence of the company i think well there's yeah. also probably just as many chopped up um shadows on the road as there are chopped up honda furies so yeah it's it's a bike that people aren't afraid it's it's a relatively modern ish bike that people aren't afraid to chop up whereas i think you would you wouldn't use this as a base to design a custom bike you'd appreciate this for what it is for for yeah at least the next decade yeah i mean yeah uh-huh i i see that all right, cool. Are we ready to move on to worst bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay, here we go. And the worst bike in the world this week is I'm arbitrarily going to pick the V the Honda VF 400 F, even though it's an awesome bike. And I could pick also the Honda CBX 550 F even though that is too is an off an awesome bike, but they each share. And there's a few other bikes that also share this one huge flaw. And it's a pretty big flaw. Should be. If you're gonna, Hon yep. if you're gonna Honda fell in love with a very weird idea in the eighties. Honda fell in love with a lot of very, very weird ideas in the 80s. And this is this comes a little bit after, you know, the so 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 Honda was one of the first motorcycle companies to fall in love with mag wheels. And they just wanted to do everything with different kinds of wheels that they possibly could. They're like, ah, we've broken free of spokes. This whole world has has opened up to us now. And one thing that Honda tried was inboard disc brakes. And they were not good. They were not good at all. So what uh, we're going to have to link pictures of oh, this. It looks a like a drum brake, but it is not. Honda was trying to have the best of several worlds at once. Now, the weird thing is, is it's not even really an inboard brake. So we need to explain what an inboard brake is. There, uh, if you just Google inboard brakes, 
you will see like a diagram. You'll be able to find some diagrams of like a car. And instead of the brakes being mounted to like the rotors, they are inside like near like where like a the the differential would be on a truck, say. They're like kind of on the axle, right? And the idea is you're reducing unsprung weights and you're putting them somewhere else and and whatever. And that's that's not a huge problem. Those brakes work. These brakes are mounted in the middle of the wheel itself. Not the rim. I mean, like the wheel itself. Like there's a hole through the middle where the axle goes through. And then like the, the, there's just like a thin plate of metal in the center of the wheel. And on each side, a disc rotor is, is attached to that. So basically what we've got here is a smaller disc in an enclosed space that's going to get hotter. Yes. That's going to be a much bigger pain in the ass to change. Not only that, but so so Honda thought that there so disc this is like the mid 80s. Disc brakes on motorcycles are still kind of new, right? I mean, a lot of things were changing to disc brakes all throughout the 70s, but this, uh, I mean, uh, some people actually thought disc brakes were, like, ugly and weird looking. Because anytime something changes visually on in bikes and styling, there's people that hate it just, just because it's different. Mm-hmm. And so this was a little, Honda was like, oh, we've got to cover up these unsightly brake discs. Or, you know, like... The, I, I don't know why, but they felt the compulsion to. Uh, I guess it, people have probably seen the the disc brake covers on Goldwings before. Or think about the covered disc brakes on Moto2 bikes. That's the same sort of thing as we're doing here. Here's the problem. These were just... Uh, I, if you've got enough money to throw at this, they can work. Uh, inboard ventilated disc brakes like this work on a lot of really heavy-duty construction equipment and stuff, and they actually work better than regular disc brakes. But those also have oil cooling systems. This is just has a little air vent on it, so it's just they just don't get cooled under hard braking. They warp. And on top of that, as you pointed out, it's just more shit to unbolt and get to. And they're difficult to maintenance. I mean, the way that I'm looking at this, uh, this isn't a super high-res image, but it kind of looks like you'd almost have to take the wheel off just to pull out and get the brake pads, the caliper back on. You have to take the, the calipers off, this weird cover off, you have to then, then, yeah, take the the thing out. I mean, it, it's just a mess. There's a whole bunch of shit in here. It's way more complicated than it needs to be. It's not straightforward, and it's a part of the bike that people need to be able to service. And uh, brakes aren't sexy. But it is one of the most important components of the bike. And if you're going to compromise the brakes of a bike, that's kind of grounds for worst bike in the world this week, right? 
if you mm-hmm. if your brakes are heavily compromised like this. So yeah. Uh, also, you're at the mercy of Honda parts. You can't just buy whatever rotors fit the bike, right? Mm-hmm. Because if if you need to replace the brake rotor on your bike, often there's a third there's a third party that makes it. You know, it just got to have the right bolt pattern. That's it. Well, and it's got to be the right size. But there are manufacturers out there that make these brakes with the with the bolt pattern you're looking for in the size that you're looking for and you can get whatever pads fit in the bike in you know because everyone a long time ago decided okay let's all make brake pads in standard sizes and they did the same with brake rotors and all that but this this doesn't play by those rules so you have to get special parts too which makes people less likely to service brakes it makes parts more expensive and a pain in the ass. You're relying on a dealer to do it because it's not like a normal setup. You may not be confident changing it yourself, so you just let it go too long. And at this point, I highly doubt any Honda dealership is going to touch it. Yeah. I bet they're going to flat out refuse. I bet you'd get the same kind of look that you get, that I get when I ask for a few, uh, for Futura parts. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know, what what if one of these bits breaks? Like, where are you going to get it? Right? I, all I'm all for the idea that Honda just thought the discs just needed to be covered up. I'm guessing that if you own this bike, if you were to restore one of these bikes today, you would just swap out the wheels and the brakes. Yeah, you'd ha- Yeah, you'd have to. Uh, but then you can't have it original. The whole thing is compromised. As awesome as the VF400F engine is, as as awesome as the frame is, and, and all sorts of things that are wonderful about this bike, just on the brakes alone, can't go there. I can't go there. What, it's, yeah. This is one of the benefits of... This is kind of one of the benefits of having marketing through racing is that you end up with a lot of features that are just objectively the best because it needs to aesthetically look like the race bikes. And so everything on the race bike has to work. It has to perform. And so you end up actually getting all the benefits of that. Uh, But yeah, some of... I don't know what this is. This it doesn't even it doesn't even look good like compared to just having a drum brake there. It might actually look better with drum brakes. Uh, to the untrained eye, it looks like an 80s sport bike that just has funky funky drum brakes for whatever reason. Uh but that's not what's going on. Um and yeah, it's 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 unnecessarily complicated because you've got this weird, like sort of Comstar-ish looking wheel because it's not even really a mag. It's got that Comstar thing where it's all riveted together. Like I think it is actually still a split rim, but then it has to take this weird disc in the center of it on each side, and these weird vents, and it, I I can't deal with it. You know what it's like. You know what you know how you know. 
This is a lot of engineering to solve the problem of unsightly disc brakes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the left-handed guitar problem, right? So, I... <laughs> I know. Well, I, so, Spe- Speaking as a Mac user, I, I would say it's like a lightning connector. Yeah, 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 yeah. sort of the same thing. Yeah, that's not that's not far off either. Yeah, you know, the the other day I took my son to to the school to to test out instruments, right? And and you know, he was asking like, "Well, how do I hold this?" And I was like, "Well, there's only one way to hold all of this stuff." And uh, the 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 middle school band teachers there, and I was like, "Yeah, I know there's left-handed guitars, but band and orca instruments don't deal with that nonsense." Okay. There's no there's no left handed flute. Someone will get poked in the eye. It's it's the way it is for a very good reason. And th- this is sort of the same thing. Like, oh well, we don't want to have these exposed breaks, so we'll do all these compromises and all these compromises and all these compromises. When the answer is just learn to deal with it, right? Left handed guitar players. Guess what? You need to develop dexterity in both fucking hands. Which one you start with doesn't matter. Just learn to play a right-handed guitar. If I sit, I can play left-handed if I want to, like a little crappily. But if I really practiced it for a month, I'd be just as brilliant on the other hand. It it doesn't matter. You have to just put in the work. You just have to deal with it. In this case, Honda finally learned that they just had to deal with it because they scrapped this entire idea in like two years. They went all in and. Um, except maybe on the GL fifteen uh, hundred, uh, which they just which wasn't an inboard brake, was still just a regular brake with a big cover on it. They they scrapped this idea completely, and I, I guess there was some idea that like less dirt from the road was going to mean that the that the pads and the rotors would last longer, but. They didn't because they were subject to so much more heat. And I, I don't know how Honda didn't test this more and discover this, but there are plenty all over the Internet. There's there's mechanics who are like, yeah, I saw a ton of these back in the day. This was a disaster. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I like the lightning connector, too. It's like, why make your own special shit when everything else works just fine? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Honda has a long history of of going through these spasms where they cover up the nuts and bolts. Yeah. This feels like it fits into that pattern a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Honda, I mean, I've been vocal on the show. Like, I I love body work. I I love, you know, ways to to put panels on the bike that, that really changes its character. You know, it's like the certain shape and angle of a tail on a bike can just take it from, oh, well, this is just a, a standard ride around town bike to, oh, this thing's sporty, right? Um, or you can get transported into another dimension with the PC-800. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if you break down everything off of a PC-800, I mean, it's a Honda VF motor, right? It's, it's barely, it's, it's basically a Shadow 800 with like sort of Goldwing-ish car-ish bodywork if you really break it down but the bodywork changes everything yeah so so a lot of me loves that stuff that honda does but this i can't i'm not on board with this one it's it's weird looking they can't all be winners 
things. They can't all be well. Again, uh, you you know, you, if you're not you can't making... have brilliant ideas without bad ideas. Yeah, uh, it's um, yeah, it's funky and strange. But you know, uh, quirkiness often can be dealt with. Unfortunately, like I said, this one this is one of those things that makes it just the bike unbuyable, like unrestorable, unanythingable, because. What you're gonna like find someone to like custom machine these things or something? I, I don't know where you get replacement rotors for this, and rotors don't last forever. It's a wear part, uh, you know. I at some point they'll go, and I I don't know where you get this shit. Yeah, which is particularly strange because if you've got a sev- if you've got a Honda from the seventies. In most cases, there's a good chance you can get parts for them. And in fact, lots of times you can get new old stock, or sometimes, in weird cases, the part's still in production. Like, yeah. But definitely not in this case. Or if it's not the part, there's some sort of replacement that works. Like, yeah. it's getting harder and harder to find points. But for almost anything that ever took points, there's an electronic. Someone makes an electronic ignition system for it now. Mm. Which every, if you have anything with points, you should just replace it with electronic ignition. Your life's going to be so much better. Just do it. <laughs> it's, uh, so yeah, I, I, I. Part of me likes that Honda did this too. I'll, I'll admit that. I I love how funky honda is honda it's just more proof that honda really has tried everything you you there's there's no modern honda that anyone can realistically take a look at and and improve and then like really do a better swing at there just isn't because they've come that every i i honda has Honda has like put has like created some sort of algorithm where they've put in every single technology and created some sort of like recursive function to return every permutation of technologies like combined together. And they're just slowly building them all out, right? They're like, what still hasn't been done? They are on the 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 edge of of the galaxy exploring different combinations of weird technologies together that you haven't even considered because <laughs> that's just who Honda is for whatever reason that they they there's just people there that never sleep and are like what weird shit can we put in a bike now and i my whole life, they've been that company. Uh, you know, Bruce's whole life, they've been that company. The, yep. It's 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 just who they are. But of course, every once in a while, there's something like this which is just catastrophic. But you know, Honda also, like I said, they they they're still trying out combinations of things. They never fully give up on an idea, like with the dual clutch now, right? It's just their their next attempt to try to make the Hondomatic like a reality, right? Yeah. So, are we going to see some sort of return to this at some point, right? We 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 spend all this time, you know, looking at these these good and bad bikes because at some point, you know, in the next ten years, some bike's going to come out with covered rotors like this, and we're going to have to be like, well. 
Now, hold on. The Honda ones didn't work because they couldn't put an oil bath system into the front disc because that would just create too much unsprung weight. It gets rid of the, you know, it, the bike's no longer as sporty because the front end's heavier because you've got and you've got liquid sploshing around in there. What's the, you know, how, how does this work? Why does this work? Why does it not work? You know. We're, I think I think that's right. I think if we, you know, if if motorcycle companies used only you know objective testing and consumer opinion to develop their products, pretty soon every motorcycle would be exactly the same, and that would right. be kind of a boring world to live in. But particularly so when you consider the real purpose of a motorcycle, which for us at least is you know enjoyment. So character actually does factor into it. So I'm with you, and as much as this bike was probably not a great success for them from an engineering perspective. I love that they keep doing this stuff because it means motorcycles will stay interesting. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Honda seems very mathematical and soulless to a lot of people. I think I'm, I'm a Honda guy because I think Honda is just so much fun. They just do the wackiest shit you go back in time and look at, you know, who was the first to do almost everything, and it's Honda. And who did the weirdest stuff? It was Honda. And just every year they're quietly doing the weird. I mean, like the NM4 Voltus. What other company would have the balls to make that, right? Or the PC800 or the CBX or any number of just bananas motorcycles. And this is another thing, too. It's, it's just like when you're talking about weird bikes with someone, you know, you can bring up, hey, do you remember in the mid-'80s Honda had a weird obsession with inboard vented disc brakes? And, you know, and if you're talking to someone that knows their shit, they'll be like, yeah, that was weird, you know? And, and that makes us fun. I mean... Everything about this bike in particular, I chose this one because this is the one of the most odd. This is a double down tube V4 400cc, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of sport naked with inboard vented brakes, liquid cooled, you know, with like a little sort of like bikini fairing kind of nacelle. This is a weird bike. You know, with its uh, f- uh, 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 four into two like balanced exhaust there, and and it's not just the front disc; it does this on the rear as well. Which I would think aesthetically would be even less relevant, considering it's going to be hidden behind the swing arm anyway, and the exhaust. Uh huh. Yeah, but- I. They just had an obsession with it. They just, I don't know. I can't fully explain it. They just did it. It's, and it's real-time market research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> real-time. I I mean, yeah, I mean, Honda I mean, that I don't know. That may not be as much as a joke as it sounds. I mean, Honda was just putting out so many bikes. You know, it seems like there's a lot of motorcycles on the market right now, and there certainly are, but they're really just, you know, each manufacturer's putting out, you know, four or five different platforms with a lot of sub models. 
But going back to the eighties and stuff, there were just so many, you know, bike and so many bikes were just like, you know, two, three, four year runs with one off motors. Yeah. And, and maybe it kind of was a little bit more effective to just put something out there and just see how much of a run, you know, make, make a run of them, see how long it took, it took those to sell. And uh, maybe development was moving fast enough that by the time those sold out, you were making a different model with a different name, but you kind of grew that idea into another one rather than market test and advertise and survey and try and test and whatever, maybe just kind of running and gunning with this stuff worked. I, I could see that how it could be cheaper to make a bike that was a disaster then invest heavily in a bike that you were pretty sure was going to be a success, but still might not be. Yeah. And I think, you know, in their case, it's really, a, um, it's really been Moneyball. Like they, they just, lots of at bats is how they win. And right. I think that, I think you're right. I think that always has been true of them, even in the, on the car side of the business. Yeah. I mean, their, their, their car side is so weird because it's so safe compared to their their motorcycles uh but yeah i mean i mean there's still weird stuff like the honda element and whatever that every once in a while they do they do something that just makes you scratch your head and go what's what what's happening over there but yeah. <laughs> uh yeah i i don't yeah i I love the idea of this bike, but again, this one and this brake system is so fatally flawed. I can't go there, but you know, this is, this is the, the, the dark side of the development process, I think is where we've arrived. I don't Um, think it's the dark side. I just think it's, it's just a swing and a miss. It's yeah. Okay. A swing and a miss, but we'll go with that. Um, uh, I was just about to go down another deep dive. I've said this before. I miss this era when Honda was painting all their frames red. It's it needs to come back. All right, cool. Um, well, where are we at here now? Oh, geez, we've put like an hour into this already. We need to get to our topic. All right, <laughs> so we brought Bruce here today to talk about something because, well, we I don't know. He's just going to bring more to the table. I think so. So we are three motorcycle podcast hosts and i i really believe that sort of motorcycle journalism you know your mcns your your ride aparts your your whatever's you know you know are all kind of doomed to failure at some point because they have to give very kind of safe answers to things they can't get very creative but ultimately they're kind of just there to sell things and we aren't really burdened with that and not being burdened with things. We can really focus more on this idea of what, you know, sort of makes motorcycling work in the minds of people. Right. And this is really the sole focus of your show, Bruce, as yeah. I see it. And yeah, I think that's right. And so we can we can think about things like this that they really can't. And, and I, I've been churning this question over in my mind for some time now. And I think a group of people like us can approach this. We won't have the answer, but we can pr- we can come up with some we can brainstorm some answers. And th- this is what like, OK, 
is it possible to to motorcycle alone? And this is kind of one of those questions like that one, like, are you a different person when you put on your motorcycle helmet? There's not really an actual answer to this question, but there are multiple answers, right? So uh, we, we were talking about this when we were out riding today, Swigs. I said, okay, so... It is possible to get on a bike and ride, you know, out, go out on a country road and there's no other motorcycles around. You're not in a group or whatever, and you are just by yourself, right? But, you know, even then, are you really, you know, alone, right? Uh, and I've got like 20 different ways, you know, I've thought of where you're still sort of connected to a group, even in real time as you're riding, you know, there's no other vehicle in sight, right? You're in the middle, you're, you're in the middle of Iowa in between two cornfields and like, you know, there's just nothing there. You're just riding and there's no one around. I'm still not convinced you're actually riding alone. No, I, I don't think you are. And I think this is something that, you know, particularly Harley Davidson actually relies on to sell bikes. Right. <clears throat> Even if you're not in an MC, if you're just riding alone, you're like, you know, you're living that biker lifestyle. You know, even if you're a dentist, like you're, you're drawing the part of the experience that you're having is drawing on that brand and the people who associate with that brand and you're still kind of repping that even if there's nobody watching yeah yeah like is is uh is is your bike's brand part of your 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 mc right yeah uh, you know i think it can be um it, but that sort of starts to frame it as a, as a you know tribal or a, a negative thing, where I think motorcycling generally appeals to people who are a little bit antisocial. So obviously not universally. That's not universally true, but you know versus the general population, I'd be willing to bet that more of us than normal um, tend to prefer tend to be introverted or to prefer. Uh, you know, to, to be, you know, kind of on our own or to, to have a, you know, me time and a rich inner life, whatever that means to you. And the, the great thing about motorcycling for people like that, of whom I count myself one, is that you can be alone, but not alone. And the, the, the fact that you're riding at all um, constantly reminds you that you're part of something and you're part of something that has uh, agreed to be a something, um, and every once in a while, you'll see someone like you come any other way, and they'll wave at you, and you can wave back. Um, and and you're reminded that you're not you're not really isolated in the universe, but you still don't have to talk to anybody, <laughs> if that makes sense. And yeah. and I think that's I think that applies to everybody who throws a leg over if they if they want to. And it isn't necessarily as um, uh, aggressively antisocial as certain stereotypes might make it seem. Does that make sense? It does. I uh 
Yeah, yeah, that's starting to tap. You're starting to give me ideas to kind of better explain some of my thoughts on this. So, um, yeah, it, it, it strikes. I haven't thought about this. It's the the most obvious thing about motorcycles ever. I just haven't. I'm just so deep in the world of bikes. I, I didn't even think about this. But you know, when you close your eyes and you picture a motorcycle, you picture just one person sitting on a motorcycle. Obviously, you can most oftentimes take two people or have a sidecar yeah. whatever but you think of a motorcycle as just having one rider on it so on the very surface level it does seem like this aggressively individualist uh activity but then again scratching the surface a little deeper you know there's there's the wave and every time you see another bike you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know anyone that doesn't do this, but I see another bike of some kind. I get excited. You know, I, 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 I perk up. I'm like, Ooh, ooh another bike, another bike. And, and I'm like, what kind of bike is it? What's this person wearing? Like, what are they, what's going on? You know? And I try to just in, in that two and a half seconds, as I see him go by, you know, I almost like, just like write my own little biography of that writer. You know, yeah. like in two and a half seconds of just looking at the bike and seeing what gear they're riding and whatever, it's I've I've already done like gone through like a weird Mad Lib sheets in my head and like fill, and like inserted all their gear and their bike and everything and right. and by the time they're gone, I'm like you know it's like oh yeah I, I I've known this rider for years and they're just disappearing in my mirror now you know right. <laughs> it's <laughs> and, so and I. I would contend that you get something out of that. I, I don't know if you guys ever um, managed to stuff your course load with the Psych 101 at some point in your education, but if you did, you probably came across something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Does that ring a bell? Yep, yep. Yeah. So so if you remember that that pyramid, and the idea is that, there, that we've got all these needs and we can sort them out into um, you know the ones at the bottom of the pile that are the most essential to survival and the ones at the top of the pile that are most essential to you know kind of self-actualization, whatever that means. So and the principle is that you have to meet each of these needs before you can graduate to meeting the next one. So the punchline here is that a sense of belonging is the next thing after food and water and safety. So, right. you, you know, if you buy Maslow's theory, so it's like really fundamental. It's way more uh, kind of basic to to how we move around in the world than than, you know, our sense of, um, you know, our sense of ourselves as philosophical beings or whatever, which um, obviously is a pond I like to splash around in. And, and but but I think it's easy to forget that 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 need to belong is, you know, is nearly at the level of survival. And the thing about the consensus around being a motorcycle rider and what it means <clears throat> and that there are others like us is that it acts like a proxy. It's sort of like a drug that, that, that keeps that need in check, especially for those of us that don't really want to be around tons of people every minute of the day. Um, so when you have the kind of encounter you described, you walk away feeling on some level reminded that there are others like you. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, somehow I find it even attractive too that 
they're they're all like us, but they're all also like splintered down into these little different subcategories and everything. I, I think that's yeah. just a fun little thing to just poke around in and and analyze and especially overanalyze. That's when it's really fun for me. Uh, but <laughs> um, I, but it's not even just that. It, it's sort of like you can't be ch- uh, being observed changes you, right? So. Even even in a situation where, let's say, you're writing and you're you truly aren't. I mean, this is impossible. Let's imagine a writer who's so individualistic and so, I don't know, sociopathic or whatever, that they're not thinking about other writers at all. They It just doesn't it just doesn't click with them emotionally. A car passing by sees a biker and goes, oh, maybe that's, you know, some Hell's Angels type or maybe that's some whatever, you know, it being observed by that car driver, you know, or them driving next to you. And, you know, we all know this on a bike as you're driving, you can uh, as you're riding, you can kind of like you, you it almost whether you're making it up or there is a real force there, you kind of feel a personality of the cars around you. Like, Oh, this person's kind of creeping up on me aggressively. Do they not like bikes or, you know, this person's hanging way back. Are they afraid of bikes or, um, you know, this person's in, in seems to be indifferent to me, but are they just, do they just think, you know, do they have a relative, like get hurt in a motorcycle accident and they don't even want to acknowledge my presence. And, you know, whether, whether there's a real force there or not, it has some sort of effect on you. And, and is, are you just being observed by other cars as being part of this group of motorcyclists? You know, are, are you still alone? Because in some spirit level, every you're carrying the baggage of every other biker, this car driver is even associated with. So you still have to deal with the repercussions of other riders, whether you like it or not. Yeah. 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 There is otherness. And I think, I think, I think some people get, um, get kind of get off on that. Uh, and, and, or they, or they simply enjoy being observed because they imagine or know that the person observing them envies them on some level or, uh, you know, whatever the narrative is that they play in their minds. But, you know, even then, even, even if those other bikers are people who have nothing to do with you in any way, there's still a sense of safety there that isn't there with someone walking down a sidewalk or driving a car because if you pull into a gas station parking lot and another motorcyclist pulls in in no universe is he or she going to take their helmet off and turn to you and say do you think climate change is real they're they're they're, <laughs> they're going to start with a motorcycle conversation yeah. right yeah. so yeah. <laughs> you know it, it's and I think that I think that has value and I think we we unconsciously nurture it because it's sometimes the best part of our day yeah, I mean, or even worst case scenario, they um, in the situation where they don't want to have a conversation with you, it's still motorcycle based. It might be like, you know, some sort of uh, someone who whether it's, um, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, I, I say often that Harley and Ducati are the exact same thing, just in different in different fashions. You know, there might be some some guy with his, you know, twenty thousand dollar race ready Ducati something and some guy with his nineteen fifty something panhead Harley and whatever. And their and their attitude might be like, I'm on just such a different level, you know, where we're not even going to have a conversation. But that's still based on motorcycles, even the not 
talking is based around that rather than jumping to the, the, the climate change conversation, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think there's even a little bit of, um, there's a bit of benefit of the doubt that we can't necessarily count on, um, in, in the rest of the world. So what I mean by that is, so my, my shed is like a, a museum of things that Nokomoto doesn't approve of. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's, a, there's like a KTM in there and there's a TFT display in there. Right. There might be some IMUs, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a triumph with a brown leather seat. Like it's, you know, I, I could be a docent. Um, but I, there was no question in my mind this was going to be a fun conversation to have because I just know that this is all in good fun. There's no, there's no, there's no chance that we're going to wind up in some kind of ideological holy war about um, brown leather seats because the fact that we are motorcyclists, we prize that more than whatever little differences we've decided to, uh, uh, you know, to have for the fun of it. Right. That, so, I think. Yeah. I think part of it is that trying to think like what other kind of sports or hobbies kind of are enough in and of themselves that they don't have to bring outside things in to supplement them in the culture mm. and like the closest mm. i can come up with is surfing okay like i i think i think that's kind of part of what we're talking about is like if somebody comes up to, if you're on a motorcycle and somebody else comes up to you at the gas station, you know it's going to be motorcycle related because there's enough here that this is, this has to be the topic. Whereas yeah. there's so many other things that, you know, that we all do that can easily get, um, that can easily get superseded by politics or the latest culture thing or some other external external thing <laughs> that can somewhat override it but that's almost yeah. never the case with motorcycles yeah that's right i think that's true yeah I, and uh i i i guess part of the the fun of motorcycling is i guess i guess you get to you get uh to have your cake and eat it too because you get to pretend that you're super counterculture and you get to pretend that you're more individualistic than you are. But at the same time, what you're doing, like you said, is, is just still feeding your social needs at the same time. So you get to have it both ways. So, you know, like, is it possible to ride alone? You know, maybe, maybe it's only possible to ride, you know, alone in some sort of sense to also simultaneously be social i i'm not saying this right but um there there's this kind of like a duality to everything right i mean maybe not if you're carrying a passenger but but you're still sort of um for most people it's kind of important more and more to have your own bike right and you, you think about like the custom bike scenes and everyone wants to mod their bike, you know, in a little bit of a way. Right. And everybody wants if you go on a big ride, uh, you're riding in this group, but 
you know, somehow there's some idea you're doing it your own way. So, I mean... Well, nobody has their own special Honda Accord, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) There are many like it, but this one is mine. You know, there's... I mean, you may like the car because of the qualities of the car, but there's, it doesn't have, you don't have the same relation that you would to even a very mass produced bike, mass produced bike, like an R6 or something. Well, people talk about the way that they ride too. There's, there's no shortage of people. If you go on Reddit or whatever, that will talk about, you know, the right way to ride, the correct way, or the the something, right? So even if you've got a totally stock bike off a showroom floor, there's some idea that you're you're riding it in a way that's different than someone else would ride it. You know, if it's when you're changing gears, what part of the lane you're in. If you want to be in the front or you have strong feelings about being in the back and seeing things develop in front of you in the group or, you know, wanting to see the group, but actually riding far behind them so you can take your own path through corners or like whatever. Right. All those little million little different things that you do. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we kind of play a little narrative in our heads of like, okay, here's how I'm executing all this stuff and, you know, in all these little ways that's right for me. Uh, so yeah, every single part of it is kind of trying to do something social and antisocial at the same time in a way it's, yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very much best of both worlds. I, like I said, a lot of this, I'm thinking of the first, for the first time, I, so, you know, um, I kind of want to talk more about this idea that your uh, the the brand of motorcycle you're riding is, you know, kind of your crew. Because, mm. like, I'm very much a Honda guy, and like today, I I kind of said to to Claire because you know, uh, this was the first time I rode with you, Swigs, with, with on your Valkyrie, and I just did a bunch of work to to the Goldwing. And, you know, we're out and I'm like, look at us out here on a couple Honda flat motors, you know, like doing our thing. And then we then we pull back up to the house and Claire's like, oh, I want to get my bike out now. Just seeing us go out for a ride and come back, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's like Honda Appreciation Day. And, you know, we're uh, we've had a lot of different kind of bikes, but we've had the most Hondas than anything else. And um, uh, we're definitely by no means. um 100% loyal to Honda. We want to own one of everything if possible. But, you know, I, 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 everyone seems to have a couple brands that they gravitate towards and they kind of just feel something for. And I don't, does every bike has a, has a badge on the side of the tank. And that badge seems to hold like quite a bit of the emotion that they get out of that bike is like in the emblem, you know, it, I mean, obviously on some level, yes, everyone is carrying a flag for their brand, but like, to what degree, to what, like what varying levels, what, what, uh, you know, and, and people connect different ones, right. You know, I saw, uh, I saw a guy today riding a, a yellow Ducati, uh, seven, four, eight, 
and and I it just stuck out to me that he had a, a big Alpine Stars jacket, and it was almost a thing where like he passed by, and I swore it said Dionysi. But then, like, I blinked, and it and it, it like came into focus as Alpine stars, right? And I, I, you know, some of it's gonna be confirmation bias, but we we notice, you know, these these tribes within tribes, and I, I, uh, people. You know, especially in gear, I think tend to buy the same brands of gear over and over and over, and uh, and there, there's got to be something to that, right? Motorcycle gear is often pretty flashy these days. There's a lot of reflective stuff. It might just be like black leather, but then stuff's going to be sewn into it in a different color. That's usually like a pretty high contrast. There's very obvious branding and everything because if you can't read it at sixty miles an hour, why is it even written on there? Right, um, there. I don't know. Like yeah. what I'm talking, it it's kind of it's kind of a version of this. This is this is an extreme example, but I don't really like open carry because when I see people openly like carrying a gun on their hip, it fundamentally changes the nature of every conversation that person's having. Mm. To some degree, the bike that you're on does that too. It's definitely a smaller degree than just carrying a gun, but there's something there, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think for most people, you know, that statement is available to them if they want to make it, but they're not necessarily burdened by it. But I think there are some brands that that, that do have that effect. And, you know, and I actually live this with with my KTM. I mean, I think there's a there is a typical KTM rider. I don't know whether that stereotype is fair or universal or even close to it. But when you think about that brand, you think about a certain kind of aggression and, 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 um, you know, competitiveness or something like that. And I'm just not that guy at all. Like I'm, I, I belong on a KTM from a social statement perspective about as much as Mr. Bean does. So I do occasionally roll into a parking lot or pass somebody on the street where I think they're making a wrong and, and excessively flattering conclusion about me based on the orange bodywork on my bike. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have that experience on a Suzuki or, or, or a Yamaha, but, but KTM a bit like Honda and a bit like, right, pardon me, not Honda, um, a bit like uh, Harley and a bit like, um, you know, some BMWs, it, it, it speaks louder than you do. And you have to decide whether you're up to the challenge of carrying that load, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, well, there you go, right there. The the stronger the brand's personality, the stronger your personality, because you either have to match it or overcome it to some degree. Yeah, exactly. Well, no matter what, if uh, it, well, if you don't have an an actual face to face interaction with a person, the only thing that the only presentation you have is the bike. Yeah, I mean, in some in some cases, there there are definitely you know the the um the old dentist on a harley uh stereotype you know maybe this is someone who doesn't necessarily have you know a big loud strong personality but this is stepping in for them right uh but i think more often the case it it's like um It's like something that amplifies what you already have going on. A cod piece, so to speak. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More often it is a, it is a cod piece and, and and yeah and like yeah and you know is it is it going to be like a you know a Harley, Ducati or KTM is your cod piece, you know, sort of jewel encrusted or is it a little <laughs> bit more utilitarian and rugged? Like, yep. you know, like, um, yeah, I of course yeah. That that is <laughs> That is a perfect example. <laughs> this is why we brought you on, Bruce. Um, uh, yeah, I so um, but I, I I'm still like I, I still I'm trying to organize these thoughts in my head of uh, so so the the group of writers that I actually think you know carries the on average carries the torches for their brand are dirt riders. I, th- there are people that are just fanatical. I mean, this is there, th- like, there are people who are just, you know, the, like, you know, born Irish Protestant or Catholic and, and can never be swayed the other way. There, it seems like there are people born KTM, people born Yamaha, people born Kawasaki, and, and, and that's just it. Every, you know their gear the cl- the colors of their gear are going to be the colors of that bike uh, you know every uh, every off-road yamaha is blue man every one of them and yep. and you'd think that there would be a lot more you know colors and options and whatever but all the kawasaki's are green all the hondas are red all the ktms are orange and they they never offer uh, a bunch of different color options. I mean, you can get aftermarket stuff, but factory standard. Every once in a while, Yamaha does a special like yellow and black heritage thing, but for the most part, they're blue bikes. Yeah, and it's a yep. it's a big thing. And I mean, they don't necessarily they don't not get along with other people riding dirt, but it's sort of understood. There's a little extra special kinship for all the other Yamahas or KTM's, right? Yeah, it reminds me. I mean, I, I live in a in a rural area, so I, I this you know this observation may not hold a lot of water universally, but it reminds me a lot of um, the way people uh, are fans of hockey. Um, you know, for example, when I was growing up as a kid, that the same phenomena that drove which team you loved in the NHL also drove whether your tractor was green or blue or red, um, or whether you drove a Chevy or a Dodge or a, or a Ford. Um, there was a. It wasn't so much a statement of individuality as it was a statement of um, of sometimes arbitrary just affiliation for the fun of affiliation, and you know the vibe of biking strikes me as like that. There's not a lot of fistfights in the pits. Everybody's having a good time, and it's kind of understood that this is an abstraction, and and um, and and so uh, as I say, it's it's a bit like you know being a Leafs fan or something. Um, but as I say, that's a fairly narrow view from here yeah it sometimes it's it's completely arbitrary because if you have a bike that's just in sort of good working order i've seen very few people hit the limits of the performance of their bike even at the track you know (laughs) so uh the was it like um if you're there, there there it's impossible for there to be such a thing as a utopia because as it, when everything becomes perfect, you, you invent reasons to, to, to draw lines, right? 
Um, it's like school yeah. uniforms. Uh, we, uh, me and Swiggs went to a school with school uniforms, and there was there were so few things that you could switch up. It had to be these charcoal pants and black shoes and this white button up shirt. If you were in the the elementary, you had to wear a jacket with the the uh, the school emblem on it. If you were in, um, but the, there were a couple things. By the time you got to the middle school or the high school, you could wear like a blue sweater or a blue vest. And all of a sudden, who was wearing a sweater and who was wearing a vest became a big dividing line, right? Or you right. had to have these special woven ties that you had to buy from the school bookstore, but they sold them in three different widths. And all of a sudden, who had a narrow tie and who had a wide tie became a big <laughs> deal, right? And so so often these – these uh, especially in dirt bikes, I think, the, these uh, these lines really aren't based in a lot of reality. You know, the, these bikes are all priced similarly. They're, they've all got similar power. They've all got, you know, this and that. There aren't huge things that really divide them, honestly. But for whatever reason, people have that emotional need to carry some sort of flag. And yeah. I, that's, that's, uh, that's different. Um, uh, you know, and then again, we're we're trying to answer this question, like you know, can you ride alone? What, um, I, I, I think the closest I've come to riding alone is doing the uh, the solo iron butt rides I've done myself, right? No, I definitely was not like, you know, the last time I did it, I broke down. I had to have some, you know, a shop help me fix my bike. Right. I was definitely not alone for that ride. But uh, it just, you know, it's like Swiggs and I are about to ride 2000 miles together to an event with thousands and thousands of other bikers, tens of thousands. Uh, right. Uh, if you take a, a ride of any reasonable length. It's usually like to you know meet some end with some other motorcyclist. I, uh, you know, like maybe commuting to work's a little bit different. I mean, you're still not alone in traffic or whatever, but even like your reasons for riding get get entangled with others. Most of the time, I notice it's it's hard to think of. You know, any time I've ever crossed state lines where I wasn't riding with someone else or riding to meet someone else, if not going to some place where there were huge numbers of bikers, you're just magnetically, even like when you're trying to, you know, like if you're trying to, if you try to take a trip on the highway by yourself, at some point, you'll run into two or three other people riding and they'll just kind of like, even if they're not thinking about it, like adjust their speed and you kind of ride as a group for, you know, 30 or 40 miles. So you have to turn like, there's just some sort of magnetism out there that even if you're trying to fight it, it comes and finds you. Right. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what you make of this. You know, I'm thinking as you talk about all of the, um, you know, sort of adventure writers, you know, who've written books or, or who do video series like Itchy Boots um, 
and writers like that, whose message appears to be over and over again, that the main thing you discover on a motorcycle is that you're not alone, um, that they, that this sort of ends up being the motif that drives right. all of their content. I mean, what do you think about that? How does that, how does that fit into your, your rubric? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that, that folds in very nicely. Like I said, if, if, even if you're trying to just, you know, cross the state line and, and not run into a biker, you know, I did it, you know, uh, and I broke down and other riders came to my help. I didn't even have to ask them. They just stopped. It, you know, there was, there was really no way I could have avoided it. I could have just abandoned my bike and started walking down the highway. They would have been like, Hey, was that your bike back there? I mean, there was, there's, there's no yeah. fit unless I just like run into like the mountains in Utah, you know, and covered myself yeah. with leaves. Right. But then a dirt biker still probably would have found me. <laughs> it's, there's just no way to escape it. So, uh, yeah, these are people that are doing that on an extreme level. Like you said, they're adventure riding, right? They're, they're taking themselves and their bikes and everything to different countries and different continents and they're imposing a a distance and a language barrier and a and a, a safety barrier on themselves and they still are magnetically drawn to these other people yeah or they're the yeah. people are drawn to them yeah and i think i mean i've heard it i've heard it speculated that the reason for this is that we as riders are publicly vulnerable so we're choosing to be publicly vulnerable, observably vulnerable. And, and what that tends to do is bring out the best in most people um, in a way that the anonymity and isolation of a car, for example, wouldn't. So I think what these people do is they go looking for proof of that over and over again. And it's supposed to give us some kind of reassurance, which I think it kind of does. But what do you think about this idea of being publicly vulnerable? Yeah, that's – I. I I guess I've sort of had this thought. That's good words to put it in. Um, I. Hmm. So. I think something about writing is you have to get comfortable with the idea of there being eyes on you at some yeah. points. I mean, you, you put your helmet on and your gear and whatever, but you still know there's people looking at you. Like I was, I was dropping my kids off at school a few months ago and there was a girl sitting in a car. She wasn't the driver. And obviously someone had gotten out of the car to go do something in the building and was coming back. But for some reason, the car's alarm was going off. And as people were driving by and dropping their kids off, you couldn't help but just turn your head and be like, there's a car alarm going off. And this girl was sitting in the passenger seat with her hands like covering her eyes. And you could see she was crying to herself because she just couldn't take all these people just looking at her. Now, obviously, no one thought that there was anything wrong with her or whatever. She was just so supremely uncomfortable with the attention. She was just embarrassed, uh, you know, uh, you know, many other people would have just, you know, kind of put their hands up and been like, I, the alarm's going off. I don't know. Or gotten out of the car, tried to open and close some doors, see what they could do. Right. But she was just paralyzed by it. And, 
my thought was like, oh, this is a person who's kind of maybe not sort of game for things, right? Like the people that all ultimately make like the best skiers, the best motorcyclists, the best whatever, are people who are kind of just sort of a they're kind of up for it. They're kind of game to try things. I, I initially with bikes, I was really enamored with this idea of um, kind of managing this vehicle with complex controls from place to place. And I knew it was a bit risky and I knew, and, and that was very attractive to me for some reason, just the machine itself was something. And then, and then quickly I, I realized, oh, it's, it's, you know, you, you are seen on this as well. That, that becomes apparent, you know, within six blocks. And you have to, you have to get comfortable with that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. This is why I always loved your question about, um, are you the same person uh, when you're riding your motorcycle as you are the rest of the time? Because, I always, I, my answer to that always silently as I listen to you in my earbuds, um, is no, I'm way better. Um, I'm cooler and calmer and more confident and more situationally aware. And I'm somebody that at least somebody out there wants to be. And none of those things, in my opinion, would describe me walking down a sidewalk. So, so my answer to your question is no, when I'm, when I've got my helmet on, I'm, I'm, I'm way more awesome <laughs> in my own mind. Yeah. And you're I so like, does this jacket like squeeze my gut a little bit, make me look thinner possibly if I hold myself <laughs> this way? Do I look like I got bigger arms? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, again, yeah. Again, in motorcycle, you get to have it both ways because you don't, you're, you're, you're covered by some layers, but you're also still like, Hey, there's that person. You know, when you look at a car, you're just kind of looking at the car. If you kind of refocus your eyes, you can look at the silhouette of the driver for a split second. You can kind of turn and get a look at someone who's driving as you pass them. But then kind of, as soon as you're past them, you're like losing details about them, you know? And it it really, the car carries the personality but the rider, if they're wearing gear, what gear they're wearing, even like the untrained eye, you know, looks like, oh, that person's just wearing a flannel shirt. Oh, that person's got an armored jacket on. Oh, that person's got like a real flashy helmet. Oh, that person's wearing just a little bucket on their head, you know, and, and all these things kind of inform and you are there and whether they can see your face or not, they're still making some judgments on you. And oh, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. And you have to be aware of that. I, I think we all are, right? I mean, you've got to be just absolutely out of your mind to not be affected by it. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, you know, the thing I think people tend to resist, um, but it's true anyway, is that there is no form of conspicuous consumption that doesn't make a statement. Um, if it's making a statement you didn't intend to make, then that's on you. Um, but it does argue for a certain amount of mindfulness about the choices you make about these things, both what you wear and what you ride and, and, um, you know, and how you ride. And, and I think that's, I think that sort of, you know, plays into what you're saying that, that, that it's unavoidable. So, you know, we may as well find a way to enjoy it and, and make sure no one's drawing wrong conclusions, notwithstanding my KTI. Yeah, I, you know, I think the... a little bit of baggage there with the Valkyrie. <laughs> yeah. Because as I pull up, everyone thinks it's a Harley. But then I have to... Yeah, you then... 
Then you get then you get up close, like, oh, no, it's got a flat six. This is definitely not. Oh, it's a Honda. It's a Valkyrie. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, when you're just going down the highway, like, I guess they could kind of key in on the fact that I don't have straight pipes on it. But besides that, yeah, it's yeah. There is there is kind of a little bit of a. It's it's a. It's a kind of oddball enough and unique enough bike that I presume everybody that I pass thinks I'm riding a Harley. Yeah, definitely all the untrained eyes are thinking that. Absolutely. Oh, I I, I was riding dad's um, Vulcan around for a few weeks and multiple like when I when I gave it back, multiple people are like, oh, do you miss your Harley? Um, I uh, they they had already imagined some whole relationship of me with this bike that wasn't even mine, you know. Like, oh, I bet you missed that Harley, huh? Like, well, it wasn't a Harley, but they've they've heard a legend <laughs> of the connection Harley riders have with their bike, right? And right. and they and they just saw that it was a big, you know, cruiser bike, and they're like, oh, I Harley's a word that I know about motorcycles, and and then thus filled in all the blanks. Yeah. Um, Honestly, and I have to say, I I think that's a wonderful thing about Harley. I I kind of uh, I kind of envy it in some ways. You know, people say, "Why would you ever want to love something that doesn't love you back?" But um, there's something to be said for something that doesn't take your house too. You know, um, like yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The um, I there was a while that i was a little bit anti harley i was like why is this company living in the past why what this this uh this group of people seems to be so conformist through nonconformity this this group of people like it a lot of it was just didn't make a lot of sense to me but i've i've been saying for the last couple of years like i think my next bike needs to be a harley and a ducati and i don't know which order but I, I, I need to go to both of those extremes. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I, I, you know, part of me wants to just ride around and be like, okay, I'm in the club now. You know, I've definitely got enough miles of experience. Now I've got a real bike. Like, is something magical going to happen or, or, or not? I don't know. Um, you know, what will I feel like I'm, I don't know if I'll feel like there's like I'll have more friends on the road or less or the same. I don't know exactly the answer. Uh, there, so y- you always have to give Harley credit. There is something mystical there. There is something intangible. It doesn't, even if the machine is flawed, there's some other characteristic with it that in America you can't 100% get with anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and I just have to, you know, grow up a bit and acknowledge that. And so I'm, I'm going to try it at some point. I mean, used bike prices are a little ridiculous right now. I, but at some point, the cost of, you know, some sort of like '96 Road King will, will, will drop enough that I can pull the trigger and trade a couple things and make it happen. But um, so. Uh, Again, like riding alone. Um, I I also had this thought about um, like uh, like racers, right? 
and this, this is a very different kind of riding. Right. Are, are racers, in a way, as close as it gets? I mean, racing really is much more of a team sport than people think. But once the race starts, I know they got their pit board, and they get a couple messages from the teams now on their screens. But they're so in the moment. Or, or is it the other way? Is it they did so much preparation with a group of people who are so invested in what they're doing second to second that while it seems that they're everyone, you know, people say, oh, Quattararo won the MotoGP season, you know, two years ago, or Banyaya won it last year. They don't say Banyaya and Ducati won the season. Well, sometimes they do, but most of the time they just talk about the rider winning the season when really the whole team won the season. Does does that lean does racing lean more solo or more team? Boy, I mean, I I don't know because I've never raced, but um from whatever limited experience I've had on the track, I kind of have to imagine that it's a super intimate experience. It's kind of like the ultimate group ride where there's a strategic advantage in knowing the other riders really well. And when you're out there, um, you know, kind of duking it out, you're inches away from each other all the time. Uh, and you have to be hyper aware, not just of your surroundings, but of what, you know, those other riders might do, um, I don't know. It, it, again, it's just a vicarious perspective, but it, it feels to me like it's it's the opposite of of um, of solitary. Yeah, I, I lean that way as well. Um, it, it's just odd because the the riders are always kind of framed as, as even though they're racing against someone else, they're kind of framed as racing alone, right? even though they have tremendous support, you know, at the highest levels of racing, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's like, it's, but let's, you know, if we think, um, you know, kind of like solo privateer racers, I, for everything I've heard about that is they would all rather share some parts and, 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 you know, help someone else race and have more competition then then the pack be smaller and less people are racing and whatever there's I, i've never heard of someone showing up to a track for a race you know some part failing on them and someone else going like no we're not going to help you get your bike ready yeah. for the race I, I've, I've just never heard that story what well, you know at the end of the day, they're competing against each other, but they kind of have to help each other a little bit first, you know. And, and on the the other end of the money spectrum of that, you know, Honda has said in MotoGP, they're like, "Look, we could buy all of the other teams if we wanted to, but there's that's no fun, right? Like we we could make this a race series of just Hondas against Hondas, but to what end? Yeah." Well, I don't know if you guys are F1 fans, but, um, you know, the whole uh, drive to survive thing, I think, has completely upended the mythology around around 
life on a track, uh, you know, in a way that MotoGP specifically tried to emulate actually, yeah. where the competitors all know each other and they know their most, you know, intimate secrets and who they're dating and what they like to eat and, and, you know, how they may have embarrassed themselves and it beats the last week. And, you know, it's, uh, so again, that's myth making, I understand, but it, it makes me even less willing to believe that, um, that these guys are, uh, you know, isolated in what they do. Yeah, I'm always confused why people aren't more like why racing isn't more popular. Because there was a time that it was much more popular in 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 this country. Yeah, it it just seems to me like the '80s was some sort of high watermark for for motorsport in the United States, and it's been kind of slowly shrinking back since then. Yeah, you know, I, I remember how rabid people were for NASCAR. At one point, NASCAR was more popular than NFL, like yeah, by far. Right. And I, it, it's, I mean, you know, nothing lasts forever. There's an ebb and flow to everything in popular culture. But it's, but I mean, you, you look back at photos and reports of like how many people attended AMA races back in the eighties. And it's like, Oh, you know, 60,000 people would show up to mid Ohio for us, for an AMA superbike race. Right. And it's like, where did that go? And I, I, I think there was a better idea of, of what went into a race team back then. Uh, uh, um, I had a, a work colleague who couldn't understand why I liked racing. They're like, it's just someone on a machine. Like the machine's doing all the work that it's, it's not, there's no soul to it, you know, where they were obsessed with college basketball and they were like, Oh, well that, you know, they can, they can kind of see these people physically doing something. I'm like, well, once, once you investigate it and you, you know, you read a couple articles and a, a couple developments about the team leading up to a race, they're always working on something. They're always developing something. And once you get an appreciation that this group of professionals has put this thing together and has dedicated their lives to putting these machines together. And then you learn that there's really a lot of skill to get the most out of the machine because every moment is your opportunity to screw up. Yeah. I, it it, it becomes almost so much more complex and there's so much more going on than a guy jumping up and throwing a basketball. I, which there's a lot in, I take nothing away from it. But for me, it seems like there's during a race, there's so many things at play. There's things at play that happened before the race, right? Parts break randomly and whatever. And that's all to do with like how the bike was prepped. So like, even though these, the bike, the, the team's done, they're not touching tools to the bike anymore. What they did is still having an effect throughout the race. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. I, I don't really have a, a very good theory about why the interest in that has waned. I think part of it is explained by the fact that manufacturers invest less marketing money in their racing activity than they used to 30 years ago. Um, so the, the the connection isn't made for us between what we're seeing on TV and and uh, what might be parked in our in our driveways. You know, it used to be race on Sunday and sell on Monday, and now it's just race on Sunday and then race next Sunday. Um, and then, so you, so you take that away and then you take away the fact that most motorsports don't have the kind of civic connection that, that a lot of, um, league team sports do where, you know, you can, 
you can support the team that comes from the town you live in or the or the one nearest and and so there's some sense of you know tribal satisfaction that comes with that i don't know um but i do agree with you that that seems to have waned well it's waned here but it's still alive and well in other places yeah in spain and portugal and italy I mean, the, the people absolutely love it in in Argentina, right? Uh, the second round of GP, so t- uh, last week, um, there was a hundred thousand people at that race. Um, wow! I mean, it's the only race happening on that in South America, so that's you know a whole continent of people coming together for that. But you know, they'll do the same thing when uh, when Form F one goes to Brazil. Um, and I'm sure there's many other kinds of, you know, things going on. There's, uh, um, you know, uh, I think there's an American round of MotoGP kind of for convenience. It's a great race. We love going to it, obviously. But it's one of the smallest races that happens on the calendar. Well, the smallest used to be Qatar. Like eight people went to Qatar. <laughs> but, but uh but that, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of the smallest races, like by far. I, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, British Superbike is definitely not as popular as it was. But you know, things like the Isle of Man and and uh, you know those Irish road races and and British Superbike and stuff that there's people turn out and watch it. You know, and if you yeah. go to an AMA race. There's not a whole lot of people there. Now, the people that are there are rabid for it, and I highly recommend you go. It's not – don't think it's going to be boring because there's not 100,000 people there. But, I mean, um, you know, or take like AMA Vintage Days that we went to last summer. That's a whole weekend of racing, and almost no one sees the racing. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 everyone's there for this weird like burning man atmosphere instead but but the racing is great too um the i don't know it's um what's the i i you know we we look at the uh kind of kind of getting outside racing and, and just going back to just regular people riding for a second um it does seem that everybody at one point or another gets some sort of um, big get together as maybe not the be all and end all or the, or the reason for their writing, but everyone has, it seems some sort of like motorcycling destination that involves other people. So we, we have several there's, there's, um, you know, GP obviously that we're doing and vintage days and, 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 uh, AMA races that we've gone to. We, we try to pick some sort of thing, you know, for some people it might even just be going to a museum, but you know, Sturgis is certainly one of these things or Americade or, um, what's the one that that's like in Myrtle beach. Um, uh, with all, it's where all like the really big swoopy bikes come from. Um, oh my god, it's like the biggest like motorcycle rally outside Sturgis. But what? what? It's Daytona Bike Week. Yes, there you go, Daytona. 
So that's not Marble Bleach at all. It's Daytona. Anyway, um, but uh, it's like uh, what um, some people never go to these events. Like even if you never go to Sturg, like how many people own a Sturgis t-shirt, uh, Sturgis t-shirt that haven't been to Sturgis, right? Loads. You can just like walk into Harley dealerships and just buy Sturgis t-shirts, right? And even if you've never been to Sturgis, like people will still sit around, like bikers will still sit around and have conversations about Sturgis. When they haven't gone, they'll talk about how they're going to go or how they were going to go, but something made it so they couldn't go, right? So they can still have the credibility of being a Sturgis-type biker without actually <laughs> investing the time to go there. Uh, right. People want to go there so much, they don't even ride there, but they trailer their bike there. I. Uh, I mean, this is a strange phenomenon that, ha- if we if we think about, it, has to inform the 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 nature of this uh, of this activity, right? If you yeah. are so dedicated to this thing, and it's it almost in a way sort of you, you know you're happy to advertise this as being part of your sort of motorcycling ethic, even though you haven't actually even taken part in it, then you know if if you if you have done or do anything sort of Sturgis or other biker rally, you know, um, adjacent, then there's definitely no way you could ever ride alone because everything that you do has been informed by this idea that someday we're going to make this pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Yeah. And if you're making the pilgrimage, then this isn't your sole religion. This is one you share with everyone else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's the best way I can put it, right? If you've ever kind yeah. of made any moto pilgrimage, then 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 you haven't ridden a single mile alone. No, that's right. And in fact, I think a lot of the people who do that sort of thing, you know, who might trailer a bike to Sturgis, for example, their motives are clearly about the sense of togetherness they're going to experience when they get there. Um, to the point where that's all that kind of matters. I think for most motorcyclists, most of the time, a destination is an excuse to ride on some level or other, but yeah. there are these sort of special exceptions. I mean, and I wouldn't judge. I mean, if I if I ever get to the Dragon, I will probably, you know, drag my bike behind my truck to get there because I don't particularly value the metal I will get for driving on interstates, <laughs> you know, right. whereas the ride when I, once I'm there would be, um, you know, probably transcendental. So, so, you know, I, it's hard to crawl into somebody else's head, but I, I can see where the gathering is so much more important than the experience of getting there, that it doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, but I kind of feel like with the exception of the events you're talking about, and there aren't many of them, um, we still mostly mount up just to ride. Yeah. When there, yeah. Yeah, I guess with the ride with no destination in mind is yeah. Um Yeah, well Um Huh. 
He said, yeah, I, there's been a few. Yeah, I, I, I'm just trying to think, like, what percentage of the time do I get on the bike and just start wandering with no particular destination in mind? I usually kind of just invent some sort of, like, sort of puppet cause or mission, you know, some something, some sort of thing to pretend to be the the sort of the ride goal right yeah exactly um, exactly our, our friend dr mike is is famous for this with his irrelevant history tours he'll be like oh we're gonna go see this thing and it's some just bizarre almost completely inconsequential monument or or statue or plaque somewhere or like it, it it'll he'll ride us out to the middle of nowhere to to look into a ravine to see a railroad that hasn't been in use for like 83 years. Yeah. We call them Mike's irrelevant history tours. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, there, there, there's definitely, there's definitely a place that we're going and like, there's a little box to check, but it's not really the purpose. The purpose is just to be on the road. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, yeah, I, um, I guess a few times with dad, we've just kind of gone like, oh, let's start riding first. Let's get to this waypoint and then we'll invent the next one. I guess we've done that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, um, I, I guess, um, I don't know. I, I, I could keep, I could keep, uh, you know, coming up with little scenarios to, to keep framing this question, whatever. But I think at the end of it, um, uh, 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 my, my, my big takeaway, I, I, I I'm going to have to think more about this idea of, um, the, what, what'd you say? The, uh, the intentional, um, vulnerability. Yeah. Publicly vulnerable, publicly vulnerable. Yeah. I, I really like the, I, I'm going to have to, to, to get back to you at some point with more thoughts on this because the, it, it, it all of a sudden it frames why people stubbornly don't wear gear. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's kind of like, it's, I almost, it's like, I, I want to step inside their head and I imagine like they sort of think they're, they're the hero in the movie. That's like walking up to the bad guy who's like put a gun in their face and they're just standing there fearless, you know, like that's sort of like on a social level, kind of what they're doing. They're yeah. just like, look, I'm just out here and I'm not afraid. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. But but they can't show that they're not afraid without kind of being part of this whole thing, right? Like I'm yeah. I'm so unafraidly uh, uh, on my own out here, but they can't be out there without it being in reference to everyone else. So that and they need everyone else's attention for that to take place. They couldn't yeah. do the same thing. I mean, you know, if the, again, you can be in the middle of cornfields in Iowa, but at some point you have to make your way back to civilization, right? Yep. Uh, so, so, the, so they even in the middle of the cornfield, they have to imagine, uh, it, you know, if a car passed me right now, they'd see me out here just so, so publicly vulnerable. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we obsess about visibility, you know, for safety reasons. I mean, I don't think that we do everything we do with the fact that we're going to be observed in mind. But, 
you know, your original question about it, you know, is it possible, do we, you know, do we ever really ride alone? I think a reasonable answer from this discussion might be if you really are riding alone, you're probably not doing it right. Yeah. 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 You're, you're intentionally hobbling your experience in some way. Yeah. 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 I think we just kind of have to leave it there. There's probably nowhere else to, to go without like, really starting to to retrace some steps and get into things that people really don't care to hear. So <laughs> I think I think we should end it there. And and uh let me see here. Yeah, just a little over 2 hours now. I think it's a good length for us to go. So um I think I think what we should do here is uh I'm sure all of our listeners know about your show, but we should plug it again anyway. Uh, Bruce hosts This Motorcycle Life, a show that um, everyone needs to listen to. I've actually, for a while, the the last few episodes, uh, I'm actually behind on your show, believe it or not, because I wanted to save some up for this 2,000-mile ride. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm behind on your I, – I care enough about your show and um, creative writing that I've intentionally created a backlog of your two shows for this ride. Um, well, that's, um, that's very flattering. And, and, and I'm thrilled to hear it because you, if you listen to 49, which is called those who wait, um, there's an interesting short passage in that conversation towards the end about exactly this question. Um, and I think you might enjoy it. Excellent. And, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe to 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 get more listeners to cross over to yours. Do you have any idea what the your next guest or your next uh, topic might be on your show? I don't. I have a couple of candidates. Um, my my failing is I do these things one at a time, which means I'm at the mercy of whether the next guest idea gets back to me and and uh, and how quickly. But uh, there's a couple of interesting opportunities. Uh, that will be very much in character for the show. So whatever it turns out to be, I'm sure if you like the last 52, you'll, you'll like this one too. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I think I'll also just give the listeners the, uh, the, the sort of the, the tagline to your show as I've always understood it. It's uh, there's a, you said that there's a philosopher inside every helmet and you're, you're interviewing <laughs> them right. all one at a time. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I love that. All right. Um, Cool. So let's end this episode then. And the next time people hear from us, it might be trackside at MotoGP, or we might wait till we get back. We're going to try to record something down there, but like we're moto camping. I can't guarantee that weather and things and whatever will get in the way. So we might have another two week break between episodes here. Uh, Well, We'll certainly will be over a week because I doubt we're going to find a way to edit and upload an episode from the track. That's probably not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, everyone will have to wait just a little bit longer. But hopefully next Monday or Tuesday we'll have some sort of MotoGP trackside content of some description. We'll see. And yeah, in the meantime, um, stay safe, stay tuned, keep fighting the dragon, don't forget your towel, all that good stuff. Let's hit the outro. Ready? And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm -hmm, Cold. 
Okay. 